Our new and young nurses need support, don't they? Don't they? I think so. So does Sarah. Let's find out. Hello and welcome back to the um, NTI 2019. Uh, it's Tuesday afternoon. We've got Tuesday afternoon and Tuesday and Wednesday day to go uh, before I collapse in uh, a heap somewhere, um, hopefully on a plane back to the UK. But I'm fortunate to be joined by Sean Dent. Now, Sean, for those of you who don't know him, if you're on Twitter, you must know Sean Dent. Um, if you're on Instagram, you must know Sean Dent. And if you're on Facebook, you must know Sean Dent. Okay. Sean uh, caught my eye very much when he started uh, posting quick videos on Facebook. Um, and ask Sean. I love your new intro, by the way, Sean. When did you have that made? Oh, I, uh, it's almost a year now. So is it? I decided to work smarter and not harder, and actually paid someone to do that. Yeah, so yeah. I it only I took me that. a decade to figure that out. Yeah, I know, because uh, I, I tinker with um, producing software, and it's just you know what time time-consuming. Oh. Well, you know the one I've just produced for Twitter for um, the opening of the exposition. I thought it was going to be simple. It took me an hour and a half, you know, and it should have taken somebody 10 minutes. But anyway, okay. So Sean is very much, um, he's, um, what's your handle again, Sean? Remind me on Twitter. It's my name, so Sean P. Dent. Yeah, All Sean. one word. Yeah, yep. okay. So Sean is very prolific on all those three platforms. And I think, Sean, your, um, uh, your raison d'etre, if you like, um, is to help support other nurses, to uh, support other practitioners. You take questions from them and try to um, pass on your experience. Is that fair? Um, yeah. So I think it all it started as um, humorous and um, being able to let the other nursing nurses out there in the online community that they weren't alone um, in their struggles. Um, my my mantra was always. Um, this is what they didn't teach you in nursing school. Yeah. And then it's turned into um, I've become a resource um, as you uh, led into. Um, I have a hashtag actually called Hey Sean, where it literally is just Q&A. Um, and I got so many questions over an extensive period of time on all my platforms that the question would start with, Hey Sean, what about this? Mm. Or, hey Sean, I have this question. So it in, turned into a hashtag and a thing, and it's now an, an entire YouTube playlist. I have... I've answered hundreds of questions and I continue to answer them nonstop. Okay. Presumably you get a lot of the same questions. I do, you? which yeah. is why I end up, you know, recording them and then they're bankable. So like when someone asks the same question over and over again, I can simply send them the link here. I've already answered this. Let me know what you think. Excellent. And the, the vlogging thing for you, what, what was your reason for doing it that way? What inspired you for that? I, it was completely spontaneous. Um, I wish I had some sort of amazing story. Um, I was off work from an injury and I had the time. So I decided to try a video and it was uh, 2000 and the end of 2016, I believe. Um, did it spontaneously on my, my then very small Facebook fan page and it caught on like wildfire. It was absolutely amazing how the response I got and the engagement I got because mm. um, I've been a longtime blogger I was blogging. I'm an old school blogger, so I was blogging before Facebook, before Twitter became popular, before Instagram. <laughs> um, and you do you did blog posts, and then you waited for the comments. Yeah. Uh, way back then, so um, that's where the Facebook fan page was created. But 
uh, kind of got away from the long long form blogging and that was when Facebook video was only exclusive to Facebook fan pages mm -hmm. you couldn't as a personal account you couldn't do video mm. um, and it was a complete spontaneous experiment I just decided to put the camera in front of my face and just started talking I knew nothing about anything with video one thing led to another and it turned into a thing and I ended up doing a video every day for 365 days straight wow um, was that easy I mean that I couldn't do I just I well just you gotta you gotta think of it this way is the content sometimes was watered down and horrible um, sometimes I talked about absolutely nothing because yeah. to to create content for every day for a year some of the content was wishy-washy so um, but I became very efficient and proficient at creating editing and posting videos um, I actually had a conversation with um, Anna Rodriguez who's going to be on your podcast so she hasn't already been on your podcast um, and the idea behind it is like when you started podcasting pretty sure it took you a while to produce a single episode and to record it and to figure out all that stuff and now you can probably do it in half the time yeah it's the same thing with me now when I do an edit like when I first started it would take me over two hours to do a 10 minute video yeah from start to finish okay I cannot do a 10 minute video from start to finish, posting it online, editing everything, twenty minutes. Okay, so what um, what subjects do you apart from? I mean, and I know it's Hey Sean, um, but for you, what are the key questions that are commonly asked from your um, audience that you think um, are the easiest to answer, if you like, and, and to help people change? The easiest for me to answer are the intangible things that they don't teach you. Um, that really have nothing to do with nursing knowledge, but have to do with surviving in the professional world. Yeah. For instance, interpersonal relationships, having to deal with a bad day, having to deal with that coworker that's violent or lateral violence, or having to figure out how to speak appropriately to a provider so that you can communicate your concerns about your patient to your physician partner. Yeah. Um, or... Uh, talking about some of the things that that go on in nursing units that you know I was I was a bedside nurse for almost 10 years before I went back and became an acute care nurse practitioner I've been an acute care nurse practitioner for I think this is year seven so my knowledge base is pretty broad but it is focused entirely in the ICU so most of my questions come from people who either are interested in or moving on in their career from you know, RN to NP and in the IC world. So I focus on that mostly, but I'll answer anything. Because as, as you and I have met, you know, some people simply ask me questions about social media and navigating social media because I've been yep. doing this a, a pretty long time. There's not many people that are still active in social media like I am hmm. who started when I did. Hmm. Um, you have to evolve because the way the social media game was a decade ago is not even recognizable compared to and what it, we do it keeps now. changing as well doesn't it because mm -hmm. um you and i 
very briefly you flirted with it a bit longer than me and you may still be on there as far as I know but I think I lasted about a day on Snapchat because I didn't really understand what the hell I was doing Mm -hmm. but the point is I'm not saying Snapchat was a bad tool all I'm saying is that these things like you say take some time get to get used to don't they you work out what works best for what particular audience for what particular medium Uh, I was having this discussion with uh, Mike earlier um, and we were saying that you know um, Facebook is kind of friends and family Um, uh, Twitter for me is the medical conversation and resource gathering and networking. Um, I don't use Instagram um, because um, I, I personally just wouldn't find it useful. Um, but it, it, once you learn how to use it, somebody like um, Anna Rodriguez, for example, uses it very effectively, doesn't she? You know, but it's the way it works for her. Um, so there's so many different social media tools out there. And one thing I'm finding from this conference, if you go to a conference in Europe, um, Twitter is the thing, okay? Everybody uses Twitter. Instagram doesn't get a look in. There's a bit of Facebook, but Twitter is what everybody uses. And here, um, I'm the top tweeter in the conference. Now, I'm hidden in a room, not seeing any of the presentations. That shouldn't be the way, really, should it? You know, if we're going to use Twitter effectively, it should be the people out there doing the networking who are using it more appropriately do you know why that is is it just a cultural thing is it a misunderstanding is it how much time we got oh well you can have yeah. about 30 seconds yeah probably. um it has to do with what people are using social media for yeah um you have to put it into perspective and maybe i'm going to get chastised for this but the younger generation utilizes social media for mostly the wrong reasons mm. um, instead of using it for professional development and career advancement they're using it as a sounding board it's the writing on the bathroom walls kind of yeah. purpose yeah um, there's strength in numbers and you know there's um, shared suffering online with the struggles that everybody goes through and that's kind of how you end up finding people but people don't make that connection that there's more to social media than just going online and complaining yeah. about what's not happening. Yeah. Um, you and I, as well as Sarah, who's sitting with us, that um, you realize that there's more to that. And then if you just apply yourself just a little bit, you would be shocked in awe at what you can discover and what you can learn. Yeah, absolutely. Just by taking that extra time on any of your social media platforms. Yeah. So. so there, we need to introduce Sarah. <laughs> there is somebody else sitting in the room with us. My phone is pinging away at the moment. Um, but Sarah Wells. Um, Sarah, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. We have had a brief conversation, but um, I won't do it justice. So Sarah, tell me who you are and what you do. Yes. Hi, my name's Sarah Wells and I'm an ER nurse. Um, I've been in the emergency department probably about eight years now working in a wide spectrum of emergency. Um, I've done burn, trauma, stroke, cardiac, kind of pediatrics, geriatrics, all the things. Um, I'm currently based out of Northern California, and I work in a community hospital setting in the emergency department there. And then also, I have a personal business called New Thing Nurse, N-E-W-T-H-I-N-G, Nurse. Um, and we, I specialize in academic and uh, professional support services for nursing students and nurses. And so I've utilized um, a lot of social media. Uh, we have a, I have a website, a blog, um, very active on Instagram and Facebook, and I do have a Twitter. <laughs> 
It just isn't utilized probably as efficiently as it could be. Um, we and work on it. I know. I, guys, <laughs> teach me. I'm open. Um, and it's at New Thing Nurse if anyone's interested in Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Um, and I utilize those platforms to try to reach out to nurses, predominantly um, younger nurses or nurses who have been suffering burnout, who are really just frustrated about where they are in their career, either starting their career, mid-career, ending their career, ready to start a new thing. So those new things can be a new job. Maybe they want to go back to school or go, go to school for the first time, a new school program, starting a new business, starting a new passion project, whatever those things are. And usually um, nurses frequently feel stuck in a place because there's a barrier and usually a very specific barrier. And it may be a very basic thing. Um, and so my support services are um, focused around helping them overcome those barriers so that they can ultimately reach those goals and become more fulfilled. Because I feel that um, burnout really is a systematic, a systemic issue. Um, really, because people aren't giving support services to the nursing community. They're um, you know, chunking them through school. They're like uh, not helping giving them the skill sets to um, deal with the stress of the workplace, um, deal with um, how to have an ongoing fulfilling career and not telling them about the versatility and variety of nursing roles out there because people just think they graduate from nursing school, get their first job, and that's all there is for the rest of their life. Um, and so what New Thing Nurse is really created to do is to help foster that more supportive system so that people realize the opportunity that's out there so they can have a more fulfilling career. So New Thing Nurses, is this just you or is there a team of you? So there's a few people. Um, I'm the pr primary for sure. Um, it's me doing all the content writing. Um, most of the service um, offerings are also are me, but I do have a team of a couple other people that I, um, there are certain things I don't do, so I have a couple other people that I kind of um, farm out cer certain tasks and service um, lines to, but it's mostly me and then a few other people that I make referrals to, and then I have a few f um, other organizations that I affiliate with, because there's you know, one person can't do all the things, but I want to help support everyone and all their things. So another thing that occurs a lot is people contact me with interest in maybe a new project or a new, I don't know, skill set. If I don't offer services to help support them, I do try to find someone to connect them with. And that's where the beauty, I think, of social media is, is that if I'm not, don't, aren't familiar of a certain specialty or maybe a certain interest, I can reach out on social media and very quickly get resources for these people, no matter where they are. So my clients are literally across the country. Mm -hmm. um, I've worked with people in the majority of the United States, and I've also worked internationally um, with mostly through the Emergency Nurses Association, which I'm very involved in. But this year I'm reaching out and um, I joined AACN. This is my first NTI. I'm so excited to be here. And so this is a great way to help me um, uh, network and uh, realize all the resources that are out there and help hopefully create a bigger network to help refer people who come to me with questions. I can refer them to other people, but be they online like Sean, um, Anna Rodriguez, or if it's an organization, a company, um, I'm opening up my horizon so I can open up the horizons of others. Okay. So what are the, what are the common problems that are people coming to you with? Because um, in the in the UK, we have now um, a group of junior nurses coming through who, um, because we have a shortage now of nurses, and I, I suspect you do here in the US as well, we have a shortage of nurses, we have too many vacant posts. So what happens is now that the junior nurses some, some become a senior nurse very quickly with nowhere near enough experience sometimes or certainly not as much experience as I got um, and as a consequence there's a lot of pressure and weight on their shoulders and they do burn out 
I hate the word resilience. I, I won't use that word. It's, it's a swear word in my language. We'll just call it the R word. Well, for me, resilience implies that there's something wrong with me. And sure. it's not me that's the problem. It's the system that I'm a part of is the problem. Absolutely. So is this what's happening in the US as well? Are you finding that these junior nurses are burning out or just disillusioned? So I think it might be a little bit of both. So there's definitely a disconnect in the United States between what the education system is preparing nurses for and the job reality that's meeting them. And also we have probably a similar phenomenon that's occurring where the baby boomer generation is retiring out. So we'll have a big... um, a large mass opening of positions coming up and we also are losing that experience so that mentorship opportunity um, we're losing nurses with 20 30 40 years experience mm. and there's not a way to connect them once they're out of the workforce to these new nurses with the system we currently have and so what I hope to help foster in the way new thing nurses set up is what we're trying to connect Um, If younger nurses are coming in and they're experiencing burnout because of the pressures on them, they're not feeling prepared, they don't have those skill sets. So the way with social media, email, like so many platforms now, we could pair more experienced nurses who are in the field, who are not in the field, who are in their geographic area, who are not in their geographic area, and pair them and create meaningful mentorship programs through that. And so a lot of what I offer when I do career coaching is really I'm just offering them meaningful mentorship. So that these young nurses often don't feel comfortable for many reasons seeking out that mentorship and the unit they're on because maybe they're um, worried about being judged by their colleagues, by being viewed as weak. Um, If they ask for help, they're not in work environments where they can reach out and say that they need assistance. So they're looking for a confidential way to find that support. And so through virtual career coaching, either online via email, text message, FaceTime, Skype, whatever it is, they can get that support they need and not ever tell anyone at work where they're getting it. And so they're getting those skill sets. We can route them to online resources and all these things. And so I think as healthcare evolves in the U.S., and I think globally, because really this problem is pretty much everywhere because they have an aging population. They're going to need more caretakers. Um, There's not enough nurses coming in, and there's definitely not enough experienced nurses to go to specialty units because I know... I recently traveled to last year to um, Poland and Norway and was working with ER nurses there. And they had the, they have like a kind of a rule that you can't go into a specialty area like ICU, ER until you have two years experience. But pretty soon, all there are going to be is new nurses, okay? But they don't have any sort of residency programs. Like we do have some in the U.S., but then the quali- then there's questions of the quality of those residency programs. How do yeah. you structure them and all yeah. these things? So really this is going to be a global issue. And so I feel that a way to help support globally the healthcare system is to create meaningful mentorship and innovative creative ways and a lot of that I think is going to be remote and I think it would be an amazing opportunity to utilize maybe retired nurses to help mentor some younger nurses because they have so much valuable experience Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to like um, burnout skill sets stress management skill sets because they've seen it I mean if you've worked in the ICU for 40 years Mm -hmm. you've seen things Mm-hmm. If you've worked in the emergency department for 40 years, you have seen some things. And it might have been paper charting then, you know, it might be tech now, but those stress management skill sets are very similar. I mean, even if it's just somebody says, yeah, that happened to me. Absolutely. You know, um, don't worry, it's not, it's, it's fairly common. Yes. Just 
and, and stress management really I, I, I don't think any of us have the magic bullet no, but we no. can all share our experiences that will help other people junior nurses identify that they're not on their own like yeah. you say so when you um, put people together with their mentors these mentors are doing it in a voluntary way are they or so currently if if it's through my business I do that privately and so it's mostly me doing it but what I'm hoping to adapt, so the Emergency Nurses Association, I'll speak to that organization just because I'm more mm-hmm. familiar with and more um, years of experience with them. Um, we are trying to organize mentorship programs online in this. Um, it's a kind of a revamp of an old system they had. And under the new system, um, people can voluntarily sign up to be mentors mm-hmm. and you make a profile in, say, the areas that you're like proficient in. And then mentees can go on and they may be experienced nurses looking just to try something new or a new nurse who's coming into the field or maybe a nursing student and they can look at profiles of people who are proficient in certain areas that they're looking to grow in and they can try to match so on a local level at my chapter um, of the uh, emergency nurses association in the bay area we're thinking about trialing that on a voluntary basis locally to try to have people in the area pair with new grad nurses, so more experienced nurses and new grad nurses, and that's kind of where we're at. Um, through New Thing Nurse, I have visions of all kinds of things that might evolve in the future, but currently I'm just trying to help support people through my p- private clients, and then online through social media, I try to support as many people as possible and put out as much free content um, as I'm able to do via uh, Instagram and Facebook, and then on my blog, I try to focus more focused content on certain articles about uh, stress management, professional development opportunities, interviews with um, nurses doing interesting things in different areas that aren't what people think of just as at the bedside. And I think a lot of um, uh, nurse influencers are trying to offer those support services. And I think some of that has come out of the need and evolved because we, like I personally, didn't have those resources. And so I recognize the value in social media and online mm-hmm. um, information. So that support was something that I utilized and then I wanted to help offer once I was in a better place. And I love that about this online sort community. Of, sort of how I ended up on social media in the first place. Yeah. Is that when I was a brand new nurse, could not believe the things that I was experiencing. Yeah. So I went out, I started a blog and yeah. lo and behold, you're not alone. Yes. And it's interesting, isn't it, that social media is a double-edged sword, really, isn't it? Because, yes, we can use it for support, but sometimes that social media can actually be the cause of the problem as well, you know? Um, I'm, you know, I was brought up as a child without social media, so didn't experience the pressures that my 16-year-old boys now experience. Um, They're not experiencing them as far as I'm aware, but you hear these terrible stories about some of the problems with social media, don't you? So it is a double-edged sword, but I think if used in the right way, is this something that you, um, a service that you can offer as well to these people to to show them how to use social media appropriately? Yes, so I have a lecture that I give often um, to, I do lectures with community nursing schools and other nursing universities in my area, usually once or twice a semester last year or two. And um, I touch on stress management, burnout, um, how to how to navigate jobs, and then also how to best up, 
a professional skill set that people don't think of is their online presence. Mm. And so if you're looking at um, new professionals who are graduating at age 20, 21, 22, they've probably had an online presence since they were like 10 years old, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Using these different forms of social media. Mm -hmm. And at 10 years old, you're not thinking about what a boss in 10, 20 years are going to be thinking about what you're posting. Now at 10, you might not be putting anything really offensive, but when you're 16, I'm telling you, Mm -hmm. like, so... Um, there's certain ways to manage your social media presence. There's a way to create a professional social media presence, and there's a way to tailor your social media presence to whatever your goals are. And so I try to teach social media etiquette to young people. Um, in it's not just young people, really. Um, uh, very seasoned professionals often don't think about the repercussions of what they're posting. <laughs> so really social media etiquette education can be um, very beneficial to people of all ages. Yeah. Um, but this is something that I try to touch on as much as possible. I have a um, blog post that I try to post every once in a while about social media etiquette for RNs, um, things to post, things to avoid, and also to be very cognizant in the U.S. at least at all. Almost every single hospital facility, they have a professional conduct or even more specifically a social media policy. Policy. Mm-hmm. And so people, I think, often are not familiar with those policies. And I try to tell them, you need to review mm-hmm. these policies. Mm-hmm. And if you have any sort of social media present, be whatever it is, you need to consider what you're posting. And it does that follow those policies. Because in the U.S., it's not uncommon for people to get reprimanded punished or even fired people lose their jobs sometimes over what they're posting and i don't think it's till after the fact that people are realizing the importance of what or the impact of what they are posting yeah i mean you know ultimately um, people often ask me that question and i say yeah there are going to be policies and procedures about this but you know what if you've got an ounce of common sense you'll do the right things at the right time to the right audience you know but I know there are some Muppets out there. (laughs) Actually, um, yeah, he's still here. Um, Brian's lecture he gave yesterday in a session here in NTI talked about social media responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm showing my age, but there was uh, actually still he's still out there. Um, Kevin MD Mm -hmm. online. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book many years ago, and I loved his interpretation of social media and online is that you need to treat everything on the screen like it was the elevator in your hospital. Mm-hmm. Would yeah. you say it in the elevator in your hospital? Yeah. Then don't say it online. Yeah. I try to tell young people to never post anything you wouldn't say to your grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> because if it offends your grandmother, it would probably offend your boss. Yeah. Okay. So, moving on, Sarah. Yes. I've got a million dollars. Million. I want to give it to you for your business. Is that U.S. or British? <laughs> First question. Well, if I make it British, it's more money. So <laughs> let's give you a million pounds then. Very good. I okay. like it. Uh, what are you going to spend it on in your business? To you, what's a priority that could do with some investment that would help this pro- process move forward? So I'd really love to invest in um, some sort of online infrastructure where I could do this uh, meaningful mentorship profiles because I think this would be really utilized heavily by um, definitely younger professionals and I think even more seasoned professionals. Um, I think people are really looking for guidance and I think that's super evident by the abundance of blogs out there of people being personal gurus of this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. And I think if there was a way to vet the um, sources of those information and then meaningfully pair people who are looking for certain information from 
real um, vetted sources, I think that could just be so helpful. I really feel that healthcare is going to continue to be a really toxic environment until we bring each other up and help build each other up. And so I think that would be something that I would definitely invest in. And then maybe a personal plane for my <laughs> But that doesn't seem like a million dollars would cover that. So we'll go with the online yeah, infrastructure. No, you have the plane. It's fine. I'm giving it to you, so don't worry. Okay, that's brilliant. That'd be a very small plane. Just to go back to a few points as well, sure. because, um, you know, I've got a, a, a UK audience as well here. Um, and I was interested in what you said before we started the interview, that you you work in ER, yes. um, which is a bonkers thing for anyone to want to do, as far as I'm concerned. It's a personal opinion. But, you're yeah, entitled but, to. You know, um, I did it for two years and I aged 10 in that time. So I thought, no, I'm not going to be doing this anymore. Um, but you work in ER. Um, and if it's anything like the UK ER at the moment, um, it's a tidal wave of patients coming through the door um, that um, and, and you can't get the flow through the hospital. So the plug is at the back end, but the mouth is wide open at the front end. Yes. So nothing's moving. So these patients come in and you've just got to cope with them overwhelmingly so um, but one of the things that you were saying is that um, you uh, as an ER nurse are often required to look after an intensive care patient in the ER um, now I, I hesitate to say this doesn't happen in the UK because I haven't worked in every hospital in the UK and it may well happen um, but how is the American system setting itself up or Let's say the American system is a bit more litigious at the minute than perhaps the UK system yes. for many different reasons. So how is the American system protecting itself for that litigation by an ER nurse looking after a critical care patient? So I don't know exactly the rules and things, but um, so ER, emergency department medicine, is emergency medicine. And we I find that we fall under critical care because like the AACN covers emergency department nurses um, and usually has a lot of very valuable education po points for that. Um, some So it depends on the facility you're working in. So the U.S. is absurdly large and we have all kinds of geographic areas with wide variety of resources. You can be in a downtown large metropolitan teaching research facility and have everything single specialty under the sun. Mm -hmm. You may have 10 ICUs with so many beds and so they may not be as impacted um, by volume and they may not have a need to hold those ICU patients um, as long or they may have a float pool with critical care nurses that are trained to go down to the ER and take care of those ICUs patients which does occur in the U.S. But at smaller facilities where you have less resources, sometimes the ED nurses and the ICU nurses are the same nurses. So sometimes in a, like maybe a 25-bed hospital total with a two-bed ER and a three-bed ICU, it's the same nurse that's going to be t checking them in the ED, starting them in the ED, then like walking over five feet to the ICU. And then that same patient converts to an ICU patient and the ED nurse can you know, magically converts to an ICU patient, yeah. nurse. Yeah. So ED nurses, I think, with a fundamental understanding is that they are fluid in their roles. We frequently have work in both areas. Now in your like mid-sized community setting facilities, you have ICU and you have your ED. And they may be of medium size, but frequently the ICU winds up being very full, and especially in winter season when mm -hmm. we're at very high census. And so we wind up holding these ICU patients for long periods of time until an ICU bed's made available. 
Um, some facilities uh, will transfer out those. It depends on how impacted you are. So they may make agreements with other facilities and they say these this patient will not be safe being held this icu because not all icu patients are created equal some are more stable than Mm -hmm. less Um, some may get transferred to other facilities if they're going to be super full in their facility so then they try to avoid the length of time the icu patient is held in the ed in that way Um, in my facility we sometimes hold our icu patients for 8 12 hours maybe usually not more than that Um, we make them a high priority to get them upstairs because we know they'll get the best care possible upstairs however the expectation is that we can give them icu care in the ed for as long as they need Um, we do have limitations like we don't do uh, certain procedures and things like in the ed for safety reasons because we're not trained to some things Um, such as um, so one time a cardiothoracic surgeon came in and demanded to put a patient on ECMO and we all laughed because we don't do ECMO. They only do ECMO in the OR. So what we did wind up doing was getting some OR nurses up to the patient and we got the patient on ECMO. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if we need to do it, we can get it done, but we it takes a little time to arrange the resources. So you were then looking after a patient on ECMO no. in ER? Well, yeah. in the ER, <laughs> we had the patient on ECMO. However, we documented and they did the care because we are not at our facility trained yeah. on ECMO, yeah. only though our nurses are. Um, and there are certain patient populations also depending. So at my facility, we don't have inpatient pediatrics or NICU or LND. So if any of those patients come in and we stabilize them and ship them out as quickly as possible to our sister facility. So we have that luxury too, which is a much bigger facility. Um, the best thing I think that can happen in a facility ideally is you would cross train your ED and ICU nurses both ways so that they can come and float and offer those resources. Cause realistically you need to take the nurses where the patients are and not have a patient can be anywhere. Really. If you have the right equipment, the right expertise, you should be able to take care of a patient in any mm-hmm. room. Um, there should be no difference. However, usually there's limitations in funding for education for those roles and training for those roles. So sometimes we just do the best we can with what we have. Um, in America, we take care of anyone who comes in. There's a federal law that, you know, everybody who comes in, we have to take care of on some level in the ED called EMTALA, um, which is interesting. You should Google it if you're somewhere abroad listening to this. Um, but it also creates that we have very large volumes of patients. So we just have to do the best we can. And it what how winds up happening is that the sick people get seen first and then everybody else sometimes yeah. waits a very long time. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that, you know, when something like that happens, it's an extreme case, but then the nurses in the ED are not practicing outside their scope of practice in any no. way. No. They're still under the, phys- the the supervision and direction of the provider, whether that be the physician or the intensivist or both. Um, critical care medicine is critical care medicine, whether it's in the ED or yep. in the ICU. Yep. It's just a matter of span and length of time. But, I mean, treating vasopressor medications and having somebody on a ventilator, whether you initiated it or you're continuing it, it's roughly the same. We could talk semantics, but from stabilization perspective, there's no loss of care or change in care if, in worst case scenario, that patient had to be in the ED for an extended period of time. And in my opinion, it's just a question of like fine tuning usually. Like we're going to give in the ED all the ICU care that these patients need. Mm-hmm. Now, will it be as pretty? and neat <laughs> as they do in the ICU. I doubt it. There's not, it's not going to be. Oh, the is age, it gonna old, be as, age old argument. <laughs> You've got to keep those sheets straight. It's truly one of the, that meme with the Christmas lights. Yeah. yeah. ED, yes, big yes. knot, ICU, real pretty, put it all together. Absolutely. So, yes. but it's, it's fundamentally still Christmas lights. Yeah. That's what we're doing down there. Okay. 
Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. Interesting. Just reminders of your your website. Sure. It's www.newthingnurse.com. And I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter sometimes at newthingnurse. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll speak soon. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, Find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk. Tweet us at CC Practitioner. Find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner. Or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. <laughs>